quite amusing that on Independence Day, when you're all celebrating your deliverance from the tyranny of the British, <laughs> that the most English person that we have on staff would be giving today's message. So, yes. I am actually a dual national. Um, I'm American and English. I have both citizenship. And so at this time of the year, there's always an internal conflict you know, um, that's going on. So I thought I'd celebrate today by sharing the story of how I came to the US. Um, some of you have heard this before, but I think it helps to underscore the main point of the message this morning. Um, and so my parents met in Bible college here um, in the States, in Ohio. My mom was going to a seminary in Scotland, and it was really austere. Like, like no heat, you had to go catch your own fish. It was, it was pretty epic. And there were a couple of American missionaries who went to this seminary, raising support, and they interacted with my mom, and they said, we think you would be much happier if you were in America. And so my mom came over here where she met my dad. Three months later, they were married. Um, so she, she fell for a yank, and, um, and then they got married, and I was actually born in Dayton, Ohio. So I was a U.S. citizen by birth. When I was about three, we moved to England, and it was really interesting. My parents took turns being homesick. So we moved to England in the 80s. There was a recession. My mom's like, let's go where I've got family. They can help us, and we can get on our feet. Um, and so we moved to England, and my dad would get horribly homesick, and so he found a job in Texas, of all places. And so we lived in Texas for about a year, and then my mom was homesick, and then we moved back to England again. And while we were in England, this was around 1996, my dad was reading the book of Job for some reason, maybe because he was homesick for the States. And he came across Job 42.10, and the verse leapt from the page at him, and he felt like God was emphasizing that to him. And that's the verse that said Job received double everything that he had. My dad was a little puzzled. Like, I know I'm missing my, my country, but, you know, I haven't really gone through what Job's been through. Why would God be telling me that he's going to give me double everything? And then out of the blue, my dad got a call from a recruiter in Michigan looking for somebody who had a background in computer-aided design. He asked my dad, how much are you making? My dad told him, he said, we'll double that. And so my parents took that as a sign that they needed to come to Michigan. So this was, what, 25 years ago or more? And, uh, and so uh, we came here. Funny thing that happened as well, my dad's car got stolen around that time. Someone took it on a joyride, totaled it, and the insurance company gave us twice what it was worth. And that's how we afforded the plane tickets to come over here. So we just had suitcases. We had no furniture. We had no credit. Um, nobody, almost nobody would let us rent an apartment or rent a vehicle. Uh, and so we just slept on futons for, for a few years <laughs> until we uh, got, got our stuff together. Um, no, but it really has been a good experience. But when I was 14, coming over here, I was super excited. I was expecting to connect with all these cool American people and maybe pick up on the accent or something like that. Um, <laughs> and I actually, my expectation wasn't really in alignment with reality. I didn't realize how hard it would be 
to connect with people who thought very differently than I did. I assumed that because we, we all speak English, mostly, that, um, <laughs> it was a little joke, sorry. Um, that, you know, everything else would just fall into place, but everything was different. My values were different, um, my sense of social structure was different, my sense of humor was different, and it was really hard to engage with my peers, uh, and I just felt very isolated, very alone. And what was interesting is because my parents uh, and our family traveled back and forth between countries so many times, I end up developing what's known as a third culture, where you're not truly any a part of the culture that you're in. So when I was in England, there were parts of uh, American uh, perspective that I had that made me stand out. When I was here in the US, then uh, my English perspective would stand out. And so I really felt like a foreigner no matter where I went. I was always really different. And, but you don't have to come from another country or go to live in another country to feel alone and disconnected. There are different cultures no matter where you go. It could be your workplace, could be your school, could be your community. And when we're immersed in a culture that thinks and acts differently than we do, then we can feel very much alone and isolated. It's interesting to study the history of America and see um, the different uh, people from Europe who came and created settlements, right? They had charters, and they were all unified around a common system of belief because they felt like exiles, even though they were indigenous to Europe, the people around them didn't reflect their worldview, and so they came here to create colonies with charters and settlements. But what do we do when we can't do that? We can't just go and start a new country somewhere that's surrounded by people who think as we do. And what do we do when God has specifically called us to remain in and influence a culture that lives contrary to his word? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth that's in your word. It's encouraging, it's life-giving, and it's real. I pray that you would make my tongue like the pen of a ready writer, that you would anoint my words, Father, that they would be edifying and winsome and gracious to everyone who hears them. And more importantly than anybody hearing me or my accent or anything like that, I pray that they would hear from you, Father, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would impart truth to each person. Father, I thank you and I declare that no one leaves your presence empty-handed. You satisfy every living thing. And we give you all the glory, the honor, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are starting a new series today called For Pete's Sake. All right? Um, and our focus for the next four weeks is going to be on the letter that the Apostle Peter wrote called First Peter. And so I want to give a little background about who Peter was. He was the oldest of the disciples. And I know that's kind of challenging because in a lot of the uh, sort of Renaissance art, we see Jesus surrounded by this range of disciples from young John to um, some of them looking quite elderly. Um, but that simply wasn't the case. Peter is the only disciple who's listed as having a mother-in-law who was married. So when uh, Peter's mother-in-law came down with a fever, Jesus healed her, and she was able to resume hospitality for her guests. Um, also, Peter and Jesus were the only ones recorded to pay taxes. So when the issue came up of the temple tax, only Peter and Jesus paid taxes, meaning they were 
21 uh, years old or older. None of the other disciples paid taxes, meaning that they were quite young. And when you read the Gospels with that in mind, that Jesus had this ragtag group of teenagers surrounding him, then it makes sense why they did some of the things they did and said some of the things that they said. And you can also see Jesus' love for the next generation pouring into them. Uh, strategically, it wouldn't make sense to have a really elderly disciple. If these are the group of people going to spread the gospel, you want them to be able to live long and go out and, and do the things they've been called to do. So Peter was the oldest. He was also a headstrong and a natural leader. I love the language that we use these days. Back in the day, we'd say, oh, so-and-so is bossy or impulsive. And, and now we say they have natural leadership potential. Um, so Peter had lots of natural leadership potential. Yes, he was impulsive, um, but he would also speak on behalf of the group. He was the one who would accept at Passover. He would ask the primary questions on behalf of others in the group. We see him giving the address at Pentecost, speaking up for the whole team. Peter, though, also had a natural weakness for pleasing people. I love how the Bible includes everything about the main characters, not just the positives, but also some of the negatives. So we see Jesus, um, during, we see Peter during Jesus's trial, kind of going with the flow of people around him when they started asking him, do you know Jesus? You, you are one of the people who are with him. And he denied Jesus three times. We see Peter kind of going with the flow when he goes to Cornelius' house and, and he is telling the gospel to this Gentile family. They get baptized with the Holy Spirit and he's like, yeah, this is great. And we kind of see Peter going with the flow when he's around some of the Judaizing influences in the early church when they started saying, no, you have to be circumcised and you have to eat kosher food. And that was something that the apostle Paul called him out on. So that was a weakness that Peter had. But Peter was also willing to take giant leaps for the gospel. He was a risk taker. He was the first to say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He acknowledged who Jesus was from the beginning. And Peter was also the one who stepped out of the boat and was willing to walk on the stormy sea toward Jesus. And he was one of the first ones to go out and spread the gospel to the Gentiles. He was a huge risk taker and took major ground for the kingdom. Peter was originally called Simon or Shimeon in Hebrew. Um, and his name Peter or Petros means rock. So he had two names and we'll see that in some of what we read this morning. Now Peter, as the oldest, as the natural leader, he was kind of like the oldest son and when Jesus was preparing the disciples for his departure, for his ascension to heaven, he commissioned Peter to keep the family together. And there were three tasks that um, were given to Peter, two by Jesus and one by the Holy Spirit. So Peter was asked to strengthen the believers. He was asked to feed God's sheep. And then he was asked to include the Gentiles in the church. So let's go to Luke Chapter 22, verse 31 through 32. Now Jesus is addressing Peter by his Hebrew name. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, 
strengthen your brothers. You can see Jesus is laying the groundwork to make sure the disciples would be taken care of even after he left. And as far as feeding the sheep is concerned, in John chapter 21, verse 17, a third time Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. He was redirecting Peter from focusing on his own failure to what he had been called to do. Acts chapter 11, verse 15 through 17, Peter's explaining to the Jerusalem council what he's just witnessed with the Spirit being poured out on the Gentiles. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's words when he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And since God gave these Gentiles the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? And so we see Peter strengthening the believers, feeding the sheep, and including the Gentiles. And Jesus gave Peter a huge task. And I can only imagine how Jesus must have felt about leaving the disciples without his physical presence. And he entrusted Peter with a precious charge, his church. So Peter is very much the older brother that was assigned to take care of the flock. And he might not be with us today, but I believe his big brother heart is preserved in the Bible and his letters are inspired by the Holy Spirit to do the very things that Jesus asked him to do. So how many of you, by a show of hands, are the oldest children in your family? Okay, good, good. Um, and then regardless of your birth order, how many of you were asked to watch your younger siblings ever? Not very many. Oh my goodness. Did your parents not have confidence in your ability to watch your siblings? Okay, so for those of you who did watch your younger siblings, uh, did they always listen to you and do everything that you told them? No, no, right? So Peter was given quite the task. Um, this week I had the privilege, like Pastor Brian mentioned, of being at junior high camp. Woo, it was awesome. Yes, we had a group of, of mostly good children. Um, no, they, they were great. They, they uh, made progress in their walk with Jesus. They had some meaningful altar times. It was wonderful to watch them caring for each other. Um, I really want to say thank you to Pastor Brian and Kasha because um, many of you know that my oldest daughter, Karis, who's with us right now, uh, she has autism and fragile X syndrome. So in order for her to be included in that camp experience, she needs help. And every single year, Bethany has sent me to go with Karis um, and be a support for her so she can be included with her peers. I love the heart of our lead pastors. Can you please give it up for them? Yes. Um, I did my best while I was gone to keep caught up on some of my tasks, but that was quite the challenge. But it was great. Karis made progress. She was making friends. I'm so proud of her and for all the students for including her. And I think that's part of God's heart. We see him including the Gentiles, and he commissioned Peter to do that. I also want to give a shout out to Pastor Bryce and Priscilla and Caleb, who went to junior high. Yes. I do not give praise easily. 
Um, but I, <laughs> I don't know why that was a, a laughable moment. Um, but Pastor Bryce and his team did a phenomenal job. We have very high caliber leaders in our student ministry. And it was, it was a pleasure to watch them pastoring these um, young people at the altars and helping them to process through uh, just the normal routine in the absence of their parents. Uh, we had students in our group who are on the spectrum, um, students from different churches, and our team just did an amazing job including everybody and helping them to take steps in their walk with Jesus. Um, and even though that was an amazing experience, and I wouldn't trade it for anything, there were some challenging moments. Um, getting teenage girls out of bed in the morning, that was one of them. Um, people leaving the room without their shoes, that was another one. Like, go put your shoes on. Um, and so I think there were plenty of times when I was tempted, I didn't, but tempted to say, for Pete's sake, put your shoes on. Um, total mom moment. But we use that term, for Pete's sake, to express annoyance, right? That's typically when we say, for Pete's sake. I want to use it differently in this series. I want to use it to implore you to receive from the Holy Spirit through Peter's writings. God gave Peter a great responsibility, and I want us to be able to walk that out in honor of what the Lord accomplished through him. So today's message is called, For Pete's Sake, Be Different. So we're going to go ahead and dive into 1 Peter. Now, according to tradition, this letter was uh, sent from Peter in Rome to the believers in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Um, it's this large area between the Black Sea to the north and the Mediterranean Sea to the south. And Peter was writing to a primarily Gentile or non-Jewish audience. Um, and so there are five chapters in this book, and we're going to cover that in four weeks. So today we're going to dig into chapter one and the first part of chapter two. So Peter opens this letter with an interesting phrase in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, and see if you can spot it. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, Peter says that these believers were living as foreigners, but he wasn't writing to the Jewish diaspora that was spread throughout the region. He was writing primarily to Gentiles who were from this region. So why would Peter make that phrase, or say that phrase, who are living as foreigners? How is that possible? How can people who are naturally born in an area and live there be living as foreigners? And I think what Peter was emphasizing is they had a completely different worldview because they were believers, because they were saved. Even though they were in the area, they weren't of the area. There are two other times that he makes this reference. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 17. He says, And remember that the heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time here, as temporary residents. That's the New Living Translation. He goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners 
to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Now, Peter described these believers as temporary residents, and that's what we are too. You and I don't belong to this world. We're just passing through. Now, if this life is really temporary, why do we invest so much time and effort in making ourselves comfortable here? Why do we go along with what our society values and promotes? You see, Peter is encouraging us to have a completely different mindset. And so here's the first point for today. To be different, we must have a different mindset. We must see ourselves as holy and valuable. So this week, as I was praying at camp, and it was more like, God, please give me a word because I'm preaching on Sunday, um, the Lord challenged me with a thought about holiness that I hadn't thought of before, and it shifted my perspective significantly. Um, so when I was a teenager on fire for the Lord, just been baptized with the Holy Spirit, um, I was studying the word, and I just kept coming across the word holy, and it just made no sense to me. I'm like, it just, just sounds like a church word. What does it even mean? And I remember I would read definitions and read verses about it, and it was just puzzling me, um, and I didn't like that feeling. And so I'm like, God, you have to explain to me what holy means. I'm just not getting it. And then one night, um, I think I was about 16 years old, um, I woke up in the middle of the night, and my room was flooded with light. It was overwhelming. It cast no shadow. My sister Kara was sleeping on her futon mattress in the corner, didn't even wake her up. But, but I could barely stand it. It, it, was, it was amazing. And in that moment, and I can't explain how I knew, but I realized that there is an incredible gap between what the nature of God is and the nature of what I am as a created being. Now, this wasn't a gap caused by sin. Uh, who has seen those um, tracts that have a picture of the, there's you or the, this little stick figure on one side, and then there's this huge gap caused by sin, and then God's on the other side, and then there's this cross that goes across the gap so you can, uh, <laughs> you can have a relationship with God? It wasn't that kind of gap. It wasn't a gap caused by sin. It wasn't relational distance. It was a difference between the essence of what I am and the essence of what God is. And in that moment, I realized I'm holy, but God is holy, 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 that there's an exponential, infinite distance between the nature of who he is and the nature of what I am. And I left that experience feeling so light. I didn't feel hungry. I didn't feel thirsty. I wasn't tired despite being up in the middle of the night. And I realized that being holy isn't just being set apart for some kind of functional use, like a golden bowl in the, in the temple. It actually means being characteristically different, different in essence, different in nature. But this week, the Holy Spirit brought another aspect of holiness to my attention, and that was that of belonging. Say belonging. Okay. So sometimes we are so focused and what holiness keeps us from, that we fail to acknowledge what holiness brings us to. So I want to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, 
God's very own possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you received God's mercy. I want you to hear what Peter is saying. You are chosen. You're a nation. It's not talking about America or England. It's talking about a spiritual nation. You are God's possession. You are his people. You belong. And this is what I want you to think about this morning and chew on. Holiness is about belonging. You belong. So Peter is saying the same thing to us today. If you have accepted Jesus, you are holy and you belong. I want you to say that. Say, I belong. I want you to say it again. I belong. Say it one more time. I belong. Holiness is about belonging. When we realize that we belong, then holy behavior will follow. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. God the Father knew you and chose you long ago, and his spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. Did you catch what Peter's saying? He said, as a result of being made holy, we obey him. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 through 16. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Do you hear God's heart? He's saying you belong to me. And if you belong to me and you are my child, then you need to be as I am. And if I am holy, then you are holy because you belong. When we acknowledge that we are part of a holy nation, temporary residents of this world living as foreigners, we make choices that are different. We make choices that protect the integrity of the group, choices that are consistent with our identity and purpose as a holy people. We start to act like the church ought to act, like children of our holy, heavenly Father. As the church, I want to encourage you that we are uniquely positioned in this moment of time to demonstrate to the world what true holiness and true belonging looks like. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. When you act like a holy person, part of a holy group, then you have an impact on the people around you. The second part of developing a new mindset um, is to recognize that we are valuable to God. So let's do a self-check. 
how well do you value yourself right now? I'm going to have some questions. I just want you to think about it for a moment. Do you feel like you have to be perfect to be loved? Do you believe you have to be better than others in your family, school, or workplace to be secure in your worth? If you don't get the attention of people you look up to, does your personal stock plummet? Do you focus on pleasing the people who seem the most disinterested or condescending towards you? I think after asking these kinds of questions, we all realize that we need to be better grounded in how much God values us. Now, how valued we feel impacts many of the choices that we make. And thankfully, Peter is here to help us out. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. And God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. God paid for you and he paid for me with the blood of his own son. I can't imagine giving Karis up for anybody. And yet that's how much he values each one of us and when we realize that, how valuable we are to God, we no longer have anything to gain by being competitive for the approval of others. Our focus shifts from getting what we think we want and what we think we need uh, from this world to giving out of the abundance that we have already received from God so we can truly and genuinely love others. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. We can see Peter's big brother heart come through in these words as he's encouraging the family of God to love one another. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter laid the groundwork that would help shift the perspective of the churches so that way they could be different. He showed them and us that we need to see ourselves as holy and valuable, and then we'll be able to truly love others and be Christ's church to a broken and hurting world. Amen? Now, Peter gives us a second way to stand out in our culture. To be different, we must have a confident expectation of salvation. Now, salvation is a funny word that we really only hear in church, and we hear the word saved more often in our culture. Um, saved by the bell, that was a show. I think it's making a comeback. Um, or I saved you a seat, we use it in that context. Or in soccer, or football, as some of us like to say. Um, the goalie saved the ball. So we use the word saved quite a bit, and it usually means to rescue or reserve something or to prevent something from coming to harm. 
Now, in the Bible, salvation has um, three parts to it. It is a present reality, it is an ongoing process, and it's also a future hope. And Peter addresses all three of these aspects in his letter. The present reality of salvation is the result of hearing and believing the message about the forgiveness of sins we receive through Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25 says, For you have been born again, but not to a life that will quickly end. Your new life will last forever because it comes from the eternal living word of God. As the scriptures say, people are like grass. Their beauty is like a flower in the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And that word is the good news that was preached to you. So you and I most likely have heard the good news that God isn't willing to count people's sins against them anymore, but he wants them to receive forgiveness of their sin by putting their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the present reality of salvation for those here who received that gift. But then Peter goes on to talk about an ongoing process of salvation that we're constantly growing into. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and unkind speech. Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. It's the Lord's kindness that draws people to repentance. And once we've received that, there's an ongoing process that we can grow into a full experience of salvation. Salvation isn't something we just receive once in an in a emotional church service and then that's the end of our experience with salvation. God wants to continuously deliver us from the power of sin. One of the terrible consequences of sin is that it robs us of confidence. Sometimes we make so many mistakes, often because we forget we're holy, we forget we're valuable, that we stop believing we're capable of doing what's right. I want to encourage you that the same God who delivered you from the ultimate penalty of sin, that's eternity in hell, is able to rescue you from the power of sin that is in your life today. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Paul's writing to the Romans, and all of chapter 8 covers this, and I highly recommend that you read it. And he explains that we are not uh, subject to sin anymore. We've been given the Holy Spirit and I want you to think, if this Holy Spirit has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, don't you think he has the power to help you overcome the sin that's in your life right now? You can experience that salvation by walking in it. As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so continue in him. It isn't something you do just once to put your hand up and that's the end of your experience. God wants you to walk it out and to continuously experience that freedom, continuously experience, experience that deliverance. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For God is working in you, 
giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Salvation is not just a get out of jail free card. It is about living free the whole time that you're here on this earth, the whole time that I'm here on this earth. And notice that it's God who gives you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. It's not based on your strength. It's not based on mine. Sin is like procrastination. Is there anybody here who struggles with procrastination a little bit? A little bit sometimes? The more often we engage in it, the less confident we feel in our ability to do what we've been called to do. And Peter's reminding us that we need to immerse ourselves in God's word and his presence. And Peter uses the analogy of nursing. Like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk. What an intimate picture. And when a mother's nursing her baby, that baby's right close to her, is aware of her presence, it's dependent on her for nourishment. And if there's an area in our lives that we're struggling in, to live out that freedom that we have received, to grow into that full experience of salvation, then we need to do the same thing. We need to immerse ourselves in God's word, immerse ourselves in his close presence. And as we take each baby step that the Holy Spirit shows us, we become more confident to take the next step and the next step until we grow into maturity in that very area that we were struggling in. And in that spiritual maturity is freedom from fear and from shame. 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Dear children, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence, and we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. And then 1 John chapter 4, verse 17, and as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. God wants you to be confident as his obedient child. He doesn't want us to beat ourselves up or feel ashamed or guilty or like we're not capable of doing what's right. He wants to help us grow, and he wants us to be confident. And we need to put that obedience into practice by truly loving each other as God commanded us to do. So to be different, we need to have a confident expectation of salvation. Not only in the future, at some future date, but right now. We need to be confident in his salvation right now that God is continuously helping us to grow into that salvation that we've received. Now, talking about a future salvation, it, it kind of makes me chuckle because in the church, we, we tend to have two extremes when talking about the future, right? There's the one camp that focuses on doom and gloom and selective judgments and tribulations. And then you have this other camp that's 
focusing on awakenings and revivals and blessings and prosperity. Um, and I think it's good to have a healthy balance between those two, that we can focus on the positive without ignoring the real needs around us. And we do this by expecting God to show up and to show off. The healthy mindset on current events is focused on a confident expectation of salvation. And this helps us to be joyful people. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation. Is that you? Are you living with great expectation? Are you confidently expecting God to come through and to show up and bring deliverance? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 says, So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. We need to be full of hope, full of confident expectation. Yes, Jesus is coming at the end of the age, but he shows up all the time between now and then, and we can be confident in expecting him to address the things that we're seeing. Now, Peter spends a lot of time in this letter discussing salvation as a future hope. Times were tough for believers. They were discriminated against, excluded, persecuted, harassed, beaten up, and expecting God's deliverance helped them to endure the hardship they were experiencing. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And so I'd like to close with this thought. Perhaps you are going through trials right now. And I want to encourage you that God will save you again and again as you put your trust in him. When you confidently expect God to come through for you, you will have the strength you need to be different while you are waiting. And I want to encourage you that no matter what you're experiencing right now, it is temporary. A little while in the perspective of eternity. And God is with you. He's giving you the desire and the power to do the things that are pleasing to him. And there is tremendous joy ahead. So just to review the things that we've covered this morning. To be different we must have a different mindset. We must see ourselves as holy and valuable. 
We're holy because we belong to God, we belong to his people, and because we're valuable, we're able to love others out of what we have received from God. To be different, we must have a confident expectation of salvation. This sets us apart. We can be joyful in adversity. And my final encouragement for you today is this. For Pete's sake, let's be different. Amen? Amen. So I'd like you to, to bow your heads, close your eyes. And I've spoken about a lot of different things this morning. And maybe there are some in here who have not had that experience of belonging. Maybe you feel like an outcast. Maybe you even feel like a foreigner in the church. But I just want to encourage you that God's heart is to include you. God's heart is for you to belong. He has a place for you. He has a purpose for you. He has an identity for you. And if that's you, and you want to belong to God's family, and you want to receive that forgiveness that we were talking about, then I'd love for you to just raise your hand. That way we can pray together, and you can belong. I'm going to go ahead and say a prayer for those who are watching online. And if that's you, then I want you to pray with me. Um, I'm just going to pray it out loud, so just uh, pray quietly to yourself in agreement. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are willing to die for my sins to bring me into your family. I receive that gift. I pray that your spirit would come into my life to help me to have the desire and power to do what's pleasing to you. I want to belong to your family. I want to be holy and show your goodness to those around me. So forgive me of my sins, cleanse me from all unrighteousness, live within me and make me more like you. Thank you for dying for me. In Jesus' name, amen. Now I want you to keep your eyes closed and your heads bowed. And if you want to receive from God this morning the strength to be different, if you want to be able to walk out that holiness that you have been called to, maybe you're struggling with feeling valuable, or maybe you've been having difficulty with all the current events in having a confident expectation of seeing the salvation of God in your life, in your community, and in this culture. And if that's you, I just want you to raise both hands to God as an act of worship, as a, as a request, saying, God, I need more of you in my life. I want to be different. I want to grow in that grace. I want to grow into a full experience of that salvation. I see those hands. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for those who have had the boldness to raise their hands and say, God, I want to receive more from your Holy Spirit so I can be different. And so that way I can make a difference in the world around me. I pray, Father, that you would increase um, awareness of how much you love them. That, Father, that you would help them to understand what it means to belong to you, to be holy as you're holy. 
I thank you right now for giving them the anointing to be like Jesus, to go around doing good because you have given them the strength through your Holy Spirit. And I thank you, Father, right now for renewing mindsets so that instead of focusing on the difficulties and the winds and the waves, that instead they're focused on you because you are a sure thing. You never leave us. You never forsake us. You are faithful to your word and you will rescue us. And so, Father, I thank you for what you've accomplished in us this morning. And I pray a blessing on all these who are here and have raised their hands. And I pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself to each one. In Jesus' name, amen.